So we are uh, in this season uh, of talking about Jesus' passion. Jesus uh, suffering on the road to uh, Calvary, on the road to the cross. And last week we looked at the first uh, milestone on that journey, which was the, the meal he shared with his disciples the, the night before he died, the Passover meal. And we're going to pick up this morning just uh, the very next event that happens. Uh, there's times that we'll need to skip a couple of steps just for the sake of time, but we're going to pick up exactly where we left off last week. Uh, as soon as this meal has finished, uh, Jesus and his disciples head out from this house in Jerusalem, and they head across uh, what was a little valley outside Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley, and they start making their way up the Mount of Olives. And let's uh, see what happens next in Mark 14. Uh, we'll pick it up from verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So this is about 11 o'clock at night. On Thursday night, Jesus is crucified Friday uh, afternoon. This is late at night after the Passover meal. On Thursday night, Jesus takes his disciples and about halfway up the Mount of Olives, there is this forested area. It's not really a garden. We call it the Garden of Gethsemane, but it was more like just a, a bush, forest, scrub area. Uh, a grove of olive trees was there and Jesus takes his 12, his inner circle of disciples, and he leaves nine of them at one point, sort of on the outskirts of this area. And then he goes on with his three most, uh, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He takes these guys uh, even further. Now, the name of this garden or this forested area is Gethsemane. And Gethsemane literally means olive press. This is important for understanding what's going on in, 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 the, in this place. It literally means olive press, and it's the name given to a huge stone structure that was commonly used in the first century around that time for producing olive oil. Probably the reason that this place Jesus is in was called Gethsemane is because it had one of these instruments. There was olive trees around and quite likely it had its own Gethsemane. It had its own olive press. That's so important to keep in mind to understand the metaphor of what's happening to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So here he is with his three closest disciples and, and he takes them into uh, the, the thick of this olive grove and then things start to get a little bit uncomfortable. Look in uh, verse 33, 34 here. The language that Mark uses is, is pretty extraordinary. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, 
and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. That word deeply distressed is the Greek word ekthambeo, and it can be used a couple of different ways. It can be used in the positive sense. It really refers to an emotional intensity. So it could mean uh, astonished or amazed, and sometimes Mark uses the word that way to say the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching. They were astonished, overwhelmed at what he was doing. That's ekthambeo, this incredible wonder at what was going on. But here, the word's used in this profoundly negative way to refer to the utter anguish that Jesus is facing, this complete inner gut-wrenching turmoil that he is going through. One commentator puts it like this, he is shuddering in distress and is appalled and anguishing. It's incredible language, shuddering in distress and appalled and anguishing. Jesus is just in absolute turbulence emotionally and mentally at this point. Inwardly, he is in chaos. He is staggering, he is shuddering, and he does not know what to do. If psychologists were uh, diagnosing Jesus at this point, they'd probably say he was having a panic attack. He was having an anxiety attack. As Jesus is here, what's happening to him, it's as if he is the olives in this olive press and the weight of what is coming for him. The weight of what is about to happen to him over the next few hours through his trial and his suffering and flogging and then eventual crucifixion is, is weighing on him. And not only that, but the agony of being abandoned by his heavenly Father the agony of, of being a substitute for sin itself in the spiritual way of what is happening is bearing down on him to the point that he is ekthambeo. He is deeply, deeply distressed. I don't know how that sits with you to think of Jesus having an anxiety attack. It's not a particularly comfortable thought, is it? Most of the time, we prefer the Jesus of the first 14 chapters of Mark. He was a little bit easier to handle. This is Jesus the lion. Now, this is the Jesus we like, right? This is the Jesus we want to talk about in church. Jesus the lion. Jesus the ghostbuster. Jesus the one who cast out the demons and won the debates with the Pharisees and uttered these incredible parables and walked on water and calmed storms. That Jesus. That's, that's Jesus the lion. And we gravitate towards him. But what about Jesus the lamb? What about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? What about this embarrassing language of Jesus being deeply distressed and troubled, his soul overwhelmed to the point of death? Sometimes we're not quite sure what to do with that. And Christians have been a bit embarrassed by this and tried to ignore it or find ways to explain it away. And think of Mark, the gospel writer, when he's got this story in front of him and he's compiling his account of Jesus, how easy it would have been for him to leave that out. He could have skipped Gethsemane. He could have just gone from the Passover meal to the next to trial and arrest, but, but, but Mark didn't do that. He deliberately chose to include Gethsemane in this account. He wasn't ashamed or embarrassed of what Jesus went through. And in a strange way, I find these words incredibly comforting because they show us a Jesus that is profoundly human. There was a heresy that was going around in the first couple of centuries called docetism, which said that Jesus was fully God, and he just appeared to be human. So it was like a mirage. He, he really was God, and he, we just thought he was human, but, but, but not really. Docetism dies at Gethsemane. 
It really can't handle the intensity of human emotion, the human weakness, the human vulnerability, the human brokenness that you find in the Garden of Gethsemane puts an end to any question that Jesus was anything less than human because this is Jesus the man. Yes, he's fully God. He still maintains his divinity. But here he is profoundly human, broken and weak and trembling and in absolute agony as the, literally the weight of the world is crushing upon him. And even though that's incredibly disturbing, it's also, isn't it, incredibly comforting? Because it says to me that it's okay to be in Gethsemane sometimes. So often we think we're supposed to have it all together. We think Christians aren't supposed to go through that stuff. People who follow Jesus, they're not supposed to get depressed. They're not supposed to be, they're not supposed to have anxiety attacks. They're supposed to just be happy all the time, aren't they? Just, just we, we got it all together, we got all the answers, we're all smiley and happy and hey, hello. And you know, this is, this is kind of how we think we're supposed to be, you know? That's why when you have the big fight with the family on the way to church, you still walk in the door. Hello, how are you this morning? Good to see you, you know? Even worse for those of us up on stage, you know? Mark worship letting me preaching, we still have the fights on the way to church and then we got to stand up. Hello, good morning, everybody. Great to see you this morning. Let's stand and worship the Lord together, you know? Because we think we've got to have it all together all the time. We don't really want to go to Gethsemane. You know, but, but clearly Jesus didn't get the memo. He didn't realize because he doesn't, he's not the happy all the time kind of guy. Here, here he is, distressed, in agony and suffering, and it's just all coming out. He's not, not trying to suppress it. He's not trying to ignore it. He's not trying to pretend that it's not happening. He's just, here he is. It's just there. He's ekthambeo. But you and I, we do everything we can to avoid Gethsemane. We're just so desperate to avoid the pain that we're going through Push it away, ignore it, just pretend that it's not going to happen. This is why rather than dealing with your depression, you'd rather, rather just medicate yourself stupid to numb the mind. This is why rather than dealing with stuff in our past, the painful memories, the abuse, we'd rather form addictions in the present that provide our mind with some sort of escapism. This is why rather than having the conversation in that relationship that's in tatters at the moment and start working towards reconciliation, you'd rather just, just cohabitate, just live in a dead marriage like flatmates and let it be what it's going to be. That's, that's why rather than entering into grief, we suppress we ignore it and we push it down and we just remain perpetually in the earliest stages of grief, of denial and protest, because we're not willing to, to enter in and go through it. Not, we just don't want to go there. Do we? we don't want to go to Gethsemane. But here is Jesus and he leads us there. He leads us there by example because he was willing to show us and Mark was willing to write it down of the God we follow being deeply distressed and troubled. And he shows us that it's okay to start being real about the, about the stuff we're carrying around in our lives. Start being real about our pain. This is where it begins. This is where Gethsemane starts. It's just by being real about the junk in your life. Not making it up if it's not there, but if it is there, not ignoring it. Just being real. Being real with ourselves about it. That if you're in ekthambeo and you're in the olive press, not trying to ignore and pretend that's not the case, not trying to push it out and just get on with life, but being real about the fact that you are going through Gethsemane. You're in the olive press now. Being real enough to own up to that yourself. 
and being real enough to own up to it with God. See this prayer that Jesus prays where he says, if it's possible, take this cup from me. It's an extraordinary prayer. It confirms to me that this stuff wasn't made up. I mean, honestly, if you and I were making up a story of God becoming man and dying for it, would you really include that? Would you really? I mean, why? Just the weakness. This guy is starting a movement. He is about to die for the sins of the world, and here he is pleading with his heavenly Father to take this cup away from him. This is just embarrassing. But you know what it does is it gives us permission. It just opens a floodgate to the way that we can pray. And it should put an end to all those sanitized, watered-down, cliched, airbrushed, PR-spun prayers that we pray to God, putting the words that we think we, you know, a little crafting our sin, just it, what it should do is just lead us to be real and raw with where we're at and just let God see who we really are. He knows what you're going through anyway. He knows how you're feeling anyway. This gives us permission just to be real with Him. Just say, Here's, this is God, this is where I'm at. If you're angry with God, be angry with Him. He can take it. So often we feel we've got to be God's public relations agent. We've got to protect Him. And I don't want to, you know, this could be bad for God, this thing, you know, if it really came out that He was causing it. Just look, He can take care of Himself, really. If you're angry with God, be angry with Him. If you want to blame God, blame Him. If you're doubting, doubt. Just be real. This is what the psalmist does through the psalms. How long, O Lord? You remember that Sunday we talked about Psalm 13? How long, O Lord, is this going to go on? Why are you doing this? It's the person who's suffering. Being honest and real with God about where they're at. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're thinking. Why not just start being real with Him? You don't have to dress up for Him. You don't have to craft certain lines and prayers and watch your words carefully. You just need to be real. And yes, we maintain reverence with God, of course. But sometimes we drift so far, we just forget what it is to be real. And we forget this prayer that Jesus prayed. God, if it's possible, take this cup of suffering from me. It's okay to pray that. And Jesus is real too with other people. You see, the, the words that he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he says to other people. He says that to Peter, James, and John. You have to wonder what they thought of that. Here they are looking for strength of leadership, commander-in-chief, the big pep rally before the final. You know, they're, they're about to take over the movement. Give us some gems, Jesus. You know, pump us up, fire us up, press our buttons. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You know, it's not really commander-in-chief material, is it? But it's being real. It's being real with other people. Of all the things Jesus could have said to try and fire up the troops, he just says, this is me, this is where I'm at. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. When was the last time you said anything nearly that honest to another person? And let them see something of what you're going through, those of you that are going through the olive press at the moment. When we start to let ourselves get real with, with ourselves, with God, with other people, only then can we get to the point that Jesus got to when he prays these words that have become the most well-known from this story. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Or as some older translations say, not my will, but yours be done. That's where he, that's where he gets to. And really what he's doing there is he's surrendering to the olive press. He's not quitting, he's surrendering. There's a big difference. He's not giving up the fight and saying, well, I've tried, I can't do it anymore. 
He is placing his life in the hands of another. And he is surrendering to the olive press, to let the olive press do its work. This is such an important moment to get to in the midst of pain and suffering and affliction, where we stop just making it a battle of wills and we stop just, just purely trying to fix it. And we reach a point of surrender and we're able to say, not my will, but yours be done. The psychologist Scott Peck says that once suffering is completely accepted, it ceases, in a sense, to be suffering. That's a kind of a jarring statement, but what he means is it's no longer just a battle of wills. It's no longer a fight. It's no longer something that you're just pushing against. It's something you've surrendered to, and then the olive press can start to do its work in your life and in mine. I met on Friday with a member, one of the members from our church, Des Stewart, and uh, he's suffering at the moment from terminal cancer. I met with him a few weeks ago, and at that stage, we were praying for Des, and he asked that we pray for, for God to heal him, and we did, and it was right that we did, and we really cried out to God for that healing. And when I met him on Friday, Des had gone through this wonderful transformation, this transition, where he, he now knows that he has weeks. And he's gone through this process of accepting that. And he's, he's no longer fighting. He hasn't given up, but he's not fighting what he can't control. He's not just trying to fix his situation, and he's not obsessed with just healing and getting better. What he's doing is he's surrendered. And he's prayed the equivalent of this prayer, not my will, but yours be done. And now that has brought him an incredible freedom. It's brought him the freedom to enjoy the time that he has and to draw near to God through that. And now these days that he has left with Jeanette are some of the richest that they've ever experienced because he's surrendered to the olive press and he's letting the olive press do its work in his life and you just see his faith emanating forward from his heart. See, Jesus knew that when it comes to the olive press, the only way that precious olive oil is going to be produced is through crushing. The only way that that oil is going to ooze out is through the process of crushing as the Gethsemane is pushed down on those olives. This was true for Jesus. It was only through going through the passion, through the cross, through the horror of the whole passion story that God's forgiveness was able to flow forth. It was only through going through his suffering that the presence of God was able to flow out and the temple curtain was torn and God's presence is available to all. It's only by going through Gethsemane and out the other side and through the suffering that was ahead of him that the Holy Spirit was able to flow forth and Jesus was able to send the Spirit to you and I. And in your life and mine, it's only through the process of crushing that that precious oil of character and maturity and Christ-likeness is ultimately produced. God will refine your character in the good times. He'll work on your character and He'll grow you and He'll strengthen you and He'll move you forward. But in those times when you're in the olive press, He'll transform you. And He'll accelerate your spiritual growth like you wouldn't believe. He'll draw you closer to Him because suffering is God's primary tool, His most effective tool 
for forming Christ in us. It's his toughest tool, but it's the most effective. It is through suffering and affliction that that precious oil is produced. There's no other way. And those who are growing in Christ know this. That as you look back on your life, it's the tough times, it's the difficult times of affliction and pain that God has caused the most growth. I met with a friend a little while ago who's going through a really tough separation at the moment and is just facing the ultimate rejection of having made promises to his wife, now facing the rejection of the person that he gave his life to. And I asked him to put down on paper what it's like for him going through that Gethsemane at the moment and what God is doing as he is feeling that weight down on him and what's happening in his own life. And uh, he, he said that he would do that. And here's what he wrote. I was confronted with a situation that I neither wanted nor expected. I was experiencing the ultimate rejection. Loving someone so much and having that love rejected and thrown back in your face. I just couldn't believe that this was me, that this was my marriage. I still wake up thinking, this can't be happening. I initially cut loose on God, questioning what good could possibly come from this, and that I didn't deserve this. What had I done to deserve such a horrible situation? I felt physical pain when I thought about what was happening. I still feel this pain when I pause and ask the same question, how did I get here? Surviving? Well, I was lucky. The first person I spoke to gave me this advice, get into the Word and into prayer, and I did. Suddenly, the Bible really came to life for me. I have found such strength from Isaiah and the Psalms. James has guided me through how to confront this and still hold my head high and represent our Lord as well as I can. I've had to learn that God is still in control, even when I don't see it. God still loves me even when my wife doesn't. The truth has not changed. God has not changed. Only my situation has changed. And then he writes this verse from Philippians, Do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition bring your requests to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. There's someone in the olive press. See, it's real, this stuff. It's not just a theory. It's not just theology. This is what he's going through right now. He's in the olive press, and you can hear in what he writes that oil that is being produced in his life. And honestly, when I meet with this guy and sit across a table and here I am supposed to be the pastor, supposed to have advice, supposed to have wisdom, I'm envious of his relationship with Christ right now because I see the glory of Christ in him. I see how close his intimacy with God is right now. And I see depth in him that I, don't, I just don't possess. Because he's got to a point of controlling the things that he can control, but realizing that he also has to surrender to the olive press. And as he does that, there is some incredible oil of growth and maturity and intimacy with God that's being produced in his life. C.S. Lewis was a guy who knew what it was to experience pain, one of the great minds of the 20th century. He was married for three years. And during those three years, he watched his wife dying of cancer. And he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. In that book, he, he wrote down one of the, the most well-loved quotes on this whole issue of pain and suffering that's been an encouragement to so many people. He says, 
God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's just a weight of meaning in those words, isn't there? It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So you and I are so deaf to God's voice, we're just not listening so much of the time when things are good, when the money's coming in, when the relationships are stable, when our health is okay. We're just getting on with it. We're just living and God is trying to speak, but so often it's not getting through. And he'll whisper to us at those times. But when we start going through the olive press, that's when we hear his voice clearly. That's when we start to hear what he is saying. That's when we start to hear him speaking to us of how much he really loves us. And for the first time in our lives, maybe we get it and we understand it. That's when we start to feel him developing within us an incredible sense of dependence on him that we've never had before because we've been so self-sufficient. But when God breaks us wide open and he is all we have, then we find ourselves just clinging to him in a posture of dependence like we've never known. When we're in that olive press, God uses those times to strengthen our character, strengthen the core of our spirit. This is why the New Testament writers, they say things like Paul in Romans 5, 4, where he says suffering can produce perseverance, and perseverance proven or tested character, and tested character, hope. So what James says in James 1, when you, can, when you go through these trials, consider it what? Joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, teleos, mature, and complete, not lacking anything. These writers saw this trajectory from suffering through to tested character, the strengthening of our spirit, the strengthening of our lives to be able, you know what perseverance, hupomone, literally means to stand up under, to be able to stand up under whatever it is that we're going through. That's what God builds into your soul when you go through the olive press. It doesn't mean that just because you're going through a difficult time, these things will automatically take place in your life. Pain in and of itself is neutral. Just because you're going through a messy breakup, just because you're suffering with your health, doesn't automatically mean you're going to grow and you're going to be drawn near to God. There's good pain and there's bad pain. And you can let pain push you 100 miles from God. You can let pain erode your spirit and weaken your faith. Or you can choose to do just as Jesus did and say, not my will, but yours be done. Open yourself up to what God wants to say to you and let the suffering draw you closer to him. Maybe he's going to use this to shine a spotlight on an area of your life that needs to change. And this might just be his tool to get your attention and start waking you up to an issue of your character that he wants to start working on. That's why I try and encourage people who are going through the olive press to start asking a new question. So often we're fixated with the question, why did this happen, and where is God in the midst of suffering, and why me, and I don't deserve this, and I try to encourage people, start asking a new question. That question's not going to get you anywhere. It's going to keep you in a world of theories and, and academics, that is completely divorced from your experiences. So start asking the question, what is God doing here? Because we don't know whether he caused it or whether he allowed it, and we'll spend our lifetime debating that, but what we know for sure is he will redeem it, and he will reclaim it, and he will use it to do something in your soul if you start listening. So start listening. What's he wanting to do? What's he saying to you? 
What's he teaching you? Because hard as it is in the middle of your darkness, in the middle of your Gethsemane, God is speaking to you and he's wanting to do something in your life. This will be a defining moment when you look back on it, so don't waste it, but open yourself up to it and ask, Lord, what are you saying? What are you teaching me? In this broken place I'm in, what do you want to do? So that we become that malleable clay in the potter's hand. And then that precious oil starts oozing forth. That's when the good stuff really starts to happen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz. Thank you.